Daily Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 168, How Electronics Are Increasing Safety and Efficiency for General Aviation. Coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. We have a large group with us uh, today and uh, recording this this evening before the holiday weekend, and uh, that's for Easter weekend. And we have all been out there doing some exciting things in aviation. We had a lot of fun last uh, week talking about fuel in your tanks. We have a few things to talk about this episode, and it's jam-packed with some information we want to relate to first. But uh, joining us this evening is, uh, and I'll just tell you who's on, it's going to be Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Victoria Newville, Tom Frick, and uh, we also have Rick Felty up in the uh, in the cold north. And uh, welcome everybody to the podcast. Thank you. Good evening. Hey, hey. Hi, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, th- this is cool having everyone on this evening. I know Eric Crump hasn't been on for a while, but he will be joining us over at Sun and Fun. So, first of all, a uh, quick shout out to our sponsor, AviationCareersPodcast.com, for career coaching, scholarships, and online tutorials to prepare you for your upcoming interviews. That's AviationCareersPodcast.com. Let's do the pre-flight. Now to our announcements. Boy, we have a lot of announcements this evening, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming up, because as you know, our one of our big live events is is uh, coming up soon. But uh, I really thanks so much for the feedback, by the way, on the Sebring shows that we did, because I didn't realize how popular that would be. Uh, and now I get it uh, from everybody telling us this, is that you really enjoyed listening to the show because it made it feel like you were there. But what we did is we did like a kind of a delayed feed on that. So we're going we're gonna to do something different. There's two big events coming up. One of them is Seaplane Palooza, and that's April 7th and 8th. And that's in Tavares in the Seaplane Basin. It's Fox Alpha 1, if you're looking for it. We'll have a link in the show notes. And both myself and also Victoria are going to be up there for Seaplane Palooza. Now, Victoria, you've actually been to Tavares and uh, have wandered around quite a bit up there. You're, you're going to be there for work, too. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Seaplane Palooza and your experience there. Yeah, the um, Seaplane Base is really, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind place. Um, there are restaurants within walking distance and as well as hotels. So it's a great place where you can go and just get your Seaplane rating over the weekend. Um, it's a beautiful park right on the lake. You get to see planes come and go. What I'm really excited about uh, for Seaplane Palooza is they are doing Seaplane Bingo this year. Seaplane and all the proceeds, bingo. yeah, all the proceeds go to a scholarship, um, a local aviation scholarship. And what they're doing is p- putting a big grid out on the lake. And a seaplane flies over and drops a, a ball of some sort from the plane. And wherever it lands in that grid, that person wins something. So there's prizes like a trip to the Bahamas and um, items like that. So you just buy a grid 
And um, they're going to be doing, I think, four ping- bingo games and uh, Aviation Insurance Resources. We actually sponsored um, one of the games. So uh, that's going to be really neat to see. I've never seen seaplane bingo before. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a blast. I can't wait to go see it. And also, I can't wait to, to see you. I haven't seen you in a while, too. That's I know. It's been it, too long. It has been. It has been. And uh, it, what's really interesting is that you're not going to be able to tell me to move chairs this time because it's all going to be set up in advance. A it little is. inside joke there. As the first time we met, said, hey, hi, hi, I'm Carl. Well, grab some chairs and set them up. And that was a, that was a blast. Incredible event you had done up there. But uh, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't boss you around. It's I know. You can boss weird. me around. That's all right. I'm used to it. <laughs> you know, this event, by the way, remember they used to have that, that fly-in during Sun and Fun? Uh, they used to call it Splash-In. I know some people have been to it. Uh, this is kind of like that. It's not, it's not associated with Sun and Fun, but it, it, it's inspired by Sun and Fun. As a matter of fact, the, some of the things that we, they do at Sun and Fun, because this is right before Sun and Fun's on the 10th, this is the 7th and 8th, is the camping and those type of things. And uh, some of the breakfasts that they've had, is, it's going to be really cool. And then afterwards... Uh, right after the end of the show, they're going to have people mass exodus over to Sun and Fun and start landing over there. Uh, really cool place to go, uh, bring the family, but also it's going to inspire people to get involved, I think, in maybe looking at your seaplane. I actually was over there looking at getting my rating, uh, and the, the Jones Brothers uh, and their Seaplane Adventures is going to be there. They're the ones actually doing the seaplane bingo, aren't they? Yeah, they're sponsoring the seaplane bingo. They have um, quite a few aircraft that they use for um, aerial tours as well as instruction. Um, they have an LSA. They have a Sea Ray over there, um, a Cessna 140, and um, they also have a club. So there's a flying seaplane flying club you can join, which is a great way to get your rating, especially if you're local. Um, you can fly and rent you know, this aircraft on a regular basis. And what's really cool, I think it's the only club that you can actually rent the airplane uh, that I know of in the United States. Uh, so you join the club, you can go ahead and use the airplane. It's tough to go out without an instructor because of insurance, right, Victoria? Yeah, most <laughs> most um, seaplanes are dual instruction only, no solo. But actually, I have a few more of them uh, coming out. They're getting popular, and it is insurable. It is doable, and a lot of them are following uh, the Jones Brothers structure. They have a uh, great, great uh, program over there that I highly recommend. Interesting. Wow, that sounds really cool. I've been, you know, one of the things I did recently, I went over to the factory tour right down the street from Tavares. It's actually in, I think it's considered Zephyr Hills, I'm not sure, uh, the Sea Ray factory, and I apologize for the people at Sea Ray. Maybe someone could look it up real quick, but uh, it's right there on the same lake, and uh, what an incredible factory it has there. And it's really, the guys are really inspi- inspirational there because they love what they're doing, and they manufacture them there. You can also buy them as a kit and put one together yourself, very popular, and the Jones Brothers, they uh, they actually do uh, the check rides over there. Uh, so for the actual folks that are coming in to get their ratings and also to pick up their airplanes. And luckily, the day I was there and went on the tour with Bill English, and you heard that in one of the previous episodes, 
we were actually there watching this guy take off and land in his red, white, and blue airplane with a big flag on the tail. It was so cool, his Sea Ray. It was just awesome. Uh, so I won't mention his name on the air right now, but uh, he's just a just a, a sweet fellow. And uh, hats off to him. I know he listens to the podcast and hope he's enjoying that Sea Ray. Anyway, the uh, what else do we have to tell him about the Seaplane of Palooza? You can find me. I'll be in the orange shirt, and also uh, you'll find uh, Victoria will actually be representing your company there uh, and yep. Aviation Insurance Resources. That's uh, Air Pros. That's the website. Air Pros, yeah. We'll be, we'll, I'll be walking around, too. I'll be in a blue shirt, but it'll say Aviation Insurance Resources on it. So just come up and say hi and let us know if you listen to the podcast. And uh, I'm really excited. I need to remember to bring extra sunblock. Yes, yes, do that. I actually, I did a silly thing. I burnt my ears. So yes, bring big hats, floppy hats, that kind of thing. You're going to be outside running around. Maybe get a ride in a seaplane. Um, also, the other thing we're doing, Victoria, and everybody here, uh, and I think everybody but Rick is going to be there uh, live, is going to be live from Sun and Fun. And we're going to have, we talked about the Daily Show uh, April 7th and 8th, and you'll see those episodes come out in iTunes and also on our website but we're also going to do a live show every day. We're going to do a, I, I should say it's a, a daily show is a better way to say that, a daily show every day. We're going to take all the interviews that everybody here has been doing out in the field. We're going to talk a lot about the fun airplanes that are flying, the people that are flying it. And we're also going to talk about careers and those type of things. And all those interviews, we're going to put them all together because obviously we do them for Sun and Fun for the radio station. But we're going to put those together and have them in a daily show. And uh, so if you can't listen to it live, don't worry. You'll be able to hear all those interviews. And plus our, our live show, we're going to have a live show on Saturday. And that's actually going to be at 5.30 p.m. until, uh, until we get tired. The other way, there's a couple ways you can actually listen to us uh, at Sun and Fun. And, of course, liveatc.net slash SNF. I have to put a plug on there for them. You can listen to that right now, liveatc.net slash SNF. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and also on Instagram. And Victoria has been doing a great job actually keeping us up to date with all those things and all that neat stuff that's out there in in the... all the all the social media stuff. I'd have to say, Victoria, you're doing a wonderful job, and and uh, I've actually been inspired by it, just seeing all the real cool pictures. Uh, Try and, and, and we'll and keep it up to date while we're there. It'll just our social media will explode yes. um, the first week of April. So <laughs> yes, it <laughs> will be will. everything on it. So that's exciting. Also, um, and by the way, for us on Stuck Mike Avcast, if you want to listen to us live, um, we are um, responsible for the 11 a.m. show until the air show, and that's every day at Sun and Fun, and that ends between about 1 or 2 o'clock whenever that air show starts. If they have problems with weather or something like that, we just keep it rolling and we keep talking. We have lots of cool interviews, and, uh, and it's, it's a blast because uh, we keep bringing people up on the deck to talk aviation. Another cool thing is the whole behind-the-scenes thing that's happening here. Uh, this could not happen, and nor did the daily shows that we did before at Sebring without uh, the help of and our producer. It's Rick Felty, and Rick, a big you know, this is going to be a challenge. I know this is kind of this is a big, big event. We're doing two of them in a row. Uh, yeah, so. it's it's fun though. I, I like the I like the challenge of it. Yeah, and you know, there's something about it. It's kind of exciting. So, so I, I can't be there, but I'll be cranking through all the content as it flows my way. 
So a lot of people don't realize, you know, we're all over the place. And this, technically speaking, I mean, the technology behind it's pretty simple. We just kind of share files and get it going. But it does take some manpower. And uh, and and one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to actually have an assistant producer on the field, and that's Robert Sigliano. And the new Pilot Pod blog uh, that was a while ago. He hasn't really been doing much with that. He kind of shut that down. But he's been a volunteer for Sun and Fun, and has been one of the editors there. The other thing he's going to do is help us uh, bring all these interviews to you. So this doesn't have, it's not just the people out there on the microphone. There's a lot of people behind the scenes getting it together. And, uh, you know, Rick, with all his, you know, talent and also his experience in editing and producing, it's it's a huge help. And, and Robert also, with his editing experience, is going to be awesome. So we're very excited about that. Um, what else did we forget? As far as Sun and Fun's concern, uh, I will also, again, you can listen to all this live on liveatc.net slash SNF. And you can find out all this stuff that's going on on our Facebook page and Twitter, and we're going to tell you about it. But the other thing that I'm going to do is a show at 7 in the morning with David Allen and Michael Ladd from Other People's Airplanes. And that, again, is liveatc.net slash SNF. And we're going to talk aviation careers. Of course, in my other show, Aviation Careers Podcast, we're having a big group together in the morning for that morning show. So that's going to be a blast. We're not going to get any sleep during the show, but it's going to be a lot of fun. You're yes, going to have no voice. Go without saying that all these are eastern times yes thank you this is in florida so florida's eastern time and uh and it's probably gonna be daylight savings time forever now uh depending on how things change in the government but the uh but yes it's uh all eastern time but that's why we're doing this this feed and everything that we're and i'm not sure about the 7 a.m show we're gonna have to talk about that maybe we could also have that uh also as a day a part of our daily show but all this stuff you're going to be able to hear later on, and then again, you can we can just we're going to be streaming this all year long. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I know uh, Larry's going to be out there in the field. Russ is going to be out there in the field doing interviews. We're also going to be live on the deck, and Victoria's going to be out there. Tom's out there. Tom's done. Uh, he does uh, a lot of the production uh, behind the scenes, and we have this machine called Hal. And uh, and if you ever wondered, I know Tom, you know a little bit about it, but there's. All that stuff that you hear goes into this huge machine, and it's a bunch of storage. And I, and by the way, uh, hats off to Jim G and Dave Pasco for uh, their their sponsorship of all that. Uh, but Tom, he he does the board sure. and all that. So, and Tom, how does that work? I mean, there, it's this huge, you know, big massive thing of, of drives. I'm assuming. Yeah, it's like this. Uh, there's a um bunch of microphones with the wires that go into this box and magic happens and sound comes out the other side it's awesome wow magic happens <laughs> sound comes out the other i like that that's really really cool uh so that's actually going to be a lot of fun so it's a little bit inside baseball that we're doing here but uh as you can tell we're really excited and ramping up for this wonderful event uh so what if there's anything else i forgot guys let me know as far as sun and fun i think i've said a lot come out and visit us uh camp radioactive is out there I don't know if we're allowed to invite people out there, Larry. Uh, I don't know if we're... I, I think we can invite people to come by and visit any time. Okay, all right. There's usually somebody there. Gotcha. All right, somebody's out there. I don't know if it's it's cordoned off or anything like that, but I know Larry's going to be one of the first people out there, I think, getting it ready, so that's cool. Uh, so we're really excited to see you all there. Anyway, enough said about Sun and Fun. Just look at... Uh, there's going to be a ton of new episodes coming out, uh, and I hope you all enjoy that. Now entering cruise flight... Interestingly, when I was at, uh, let's see, I was over at Sebring at the Affordable Air Show or uh, Light Sport Aircraft Show and uh, talked to a couple of people over there. And uh, one of the people I didn't really get to do an interview with because so many people were really just 
at the booth, all excited to talk to them, was uh, Dynon Avionics. And uh, Dynon actually recently came out with a new SDC approval for the it's the Skyview HDX. And the Skyview HDX is an incredible system. It's a whole suite of avionics. Uh, the coolest thing about it is basically to describe it is it's a screen in front of you. It's all electronic flight and display, and it is amazing. It has a built-in mode S transponder and also has the ADS-B compliant uh, transponder. All this stuff is built into a little package, and I think it's even touchscreen. But but one of the cool things about it, it also has uh, this thing, um, which I, I love because of the safety. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Is It also has the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the, the vision, the synthetic vision and angle of attack thing. So you have both of those things. Uh, mm-hmm. in, incorporated into this, which is really, really cool. And the fact that they got this STC approval, let's talk a little bit about the models, too. It's actually uh, on the 172s. Uh, there's a bunch of models there, the F through the S models, and uh, I think all of them in between, I'm pretty sure. But uh, look it up on their website at uh, dynonavionics.com. Uh, it's actually not that... Uh, not that bad. It's it's uh, fairly you know inexpensive uh, to put this in your airplane. But that's you know we're we're talking about this as a news item. But it's also something that I think is really great for us as general aviation and a, and a good topic to talk about is the fact that these electronics in our aircraft is it's both increasing I think safety and also efficiency obviously in general aviation. And we've seen this in other environments where, you know, in the corporate world, in the airline world, where they have these screens. And, and I know it's been there for a while. Um, you know, the G1000s, that was like a big wow. I know Tom and I went up on a flight. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this has more than most of the airliners I've flown. Um, but it, it's, taking the, it's taking another step, I feel. And it might be a little bit more nuanced. But we are not, you know, we're not just seeing, you know, electronic HSIs and things like that. We're seeing, we're we're also seeing things that are coming out that are making it safer as far as angle of attack indicators, uh, better autopilots, uh, systems that can actually do a much better job of tracking, updating, changing the whole system, soup to nuts from integration from our airplane to our navigation abilities. So, with that said. I, you know, I'm going to start this off as far as, as safety and also efficiency, but one of the things that, that I really was reticent about, and I, I, it took me many years, and, and believe me, I fly a highly automated aircraft at work, and I turn the stuff off a lot, but I did not want autopilot. I thought it was the worst thing in the world, you know, 20-some-odd years ago when I was flying because they weren't very good, and now they've taken leaps forward. So I'd, I'd like to hear, and that's one way that it's helped safety, because autopilots will enable you to give much better situational awareness, and uh, it actually really reduces your workload. All of a sudden, from just focusing on one thing, now you can focus on the big picture. So it's also, you know, your friend in the cockpit flying. So I want to hear from some of the other folks here as far as their experiences with with some of the glass cockpit. And I know, Tom, uh, I was going to start with you because you and I, I kind of <laughs> joked about it. I haven't, before the, the show, we were talking about I haven't flown an airplane in weeks. I've got a lot of time off. And I said that with you that time. But when I got in there and saw the G1000, I was like, wow, this thing is, is really cool. How about from that point, from the G1000 now forward, have you been able to fly things in the general aviation environment that have 
have some of these new technologies and have been upgraded since then. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I did most of my training um, as a private pilot uh, in the G-1000. I didn't even fly a dialed aircraft until I already had a, had a private pilot certificate. I was already working on my instrument. And, um, you know, today I'm a... a, a I'm a Cirrus instructor as well, so um, I fly the uh, the Avidyne system. I also fly the uh, Garmin G1000 perspective system that's in the Cirrus, um, along with the G1000 and the Cessnas as well. And it's just amazing just how robust those those systems are. Um, I didn't realize that I was learning something uh, really well, special at, the, at that point. Um, when I was working on my private, uh, I happened to go on a business trip and uh, was flying in a... Uh, um, just commercially in a in an MD80 from Tampa to Atlanta, and I happened to see the pilot sitting in the in the uh, waiting area waiting to get on the plane, and you know, I don't know if you've noticed, Carl, I'm a little talkative, but I I, I sat down next to this guy and just told him what I was working on, and he goes, oh hey, that's cool. So we started talking about systems and stuff like that, and I was telling him about the G1000 and my Cessna, and he's going, holy cow, man. He says you've got better avionics in that thing than this MD80 that's about to take us to Atlanta. He says I'm flying VOR to BOR in this thing. And I was taken aback. I had no idea that, that um, you know, the avionics that I was using were actually that far advanced. Um, so, yeah, just, just playing with them and, and having the opportunity to take students that are um, used to flying dialed aircraft and, and transitioning them over into a G1000 world has been fun, too. We're just watching them, how amazed they are at, at how robust the system is and how it can help them in different phases of flight, both just for everyday VFR flying and all the way through, um, you know, intricate um, flight plans with instrument flying as well. Have you seen any difference in, uh, in challenges in moving those folks from, say, the round dials to this glass cockpit? Uh, nothing specific. Um, a lot of times it's just a matter of getting their, um, their sight picture changed. Um, as I was looking at this system here with this Dynon system, the one thing that I've seen that um, a lot of these manufacturers with the, with the glass cockpits have done is the layout is, it's not the same, but it's similar. You end up with you know, airspeed on the left, altitude and vertical speed on the right, um, attitude and heading in the center, usually the heading on the bottom and the and attitude on the top. And it seems like they're pretty consistent like that. So even going from one glass cockpit to a different glass cockpit now becomes easier because there seems to be some type of standardization, which I think is just awesome. Yeah, that is great to have some type of standardization. But one of the things that I've seen in the past with moving from uh, what got the, the old pilots, they, they call it the electric airplanes, you know, it says, oh, that's that electric stuff. No, I don't do that. Uh, and, you know, flying VOR to VOR, there's still folks that are doing that, just like you said, uh, in the MD-80, even in some of the old 727s. And it's funny, I was sitting in an F, uh, on FedEx, you know, jump seating, and it's like, oh, my gosh, these guys are still doing some VOR stuff. Uh, a lot of folks had some problems moving into uh, all this, the EFIS and everything. And, and one of the things that you find is some of those folks have been doing it for 30 years, flying these, these air, round-dialed airplanes. And I related it to some of my friends who have bought older airplanes, like some 172s, 1960s, 1970s, and they've updated all their equipment. And I, I know there were certain challenges with my buddies that have done that. And they're just like, oh, man, you know, I've got to get used to all this electronics that I haven't had any experience with. And I think part of it is it's what you know. You know, it, it's just natural that you, you go back to what it is that, that you know and you feel comfortable with. Uh, but the transition that, like you're saying, talking about, Tom, a lot of those folks, I, I'm assuming, uh, don't have a lot of hours right now. Uh, but have you had some folks that have been flying, say, round dials for 
most of their careers or most of their, their lives in their 172s and been able to transfer some of those folks that have a little more experience. Absolutely. And I have a student that, uh, that came, comes to see me. He actually lives in England and he's a, uh, a pilot examiner in England and spent most of his uh, career all with dialed aircraft and now uh, has a friend that uh, bought a 182 with a G1000 in it and um, also the flight school that he's teaching at and also has um, that, that he does examinations at also has a 182 with a G1000. And it wasn't starting from scratch with him, but he was completely overwhelmed with the system. And he says, here I am. I'm, I need to get to a place where I can evaluate people in this particular setup. And uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. Help me. So we did. And I spent a lot of time with him in um, a simulator um, with that was set up with the with the G1000. And it's it's a lot of buttonology, if you will. It's going through and just it, it's not that he doesn't know how to fly. It wasn't that he doesn't understand the procedures He that he was clear on every bit of that stuff. But how does he translate what he learned in the round dial world over into the glass cockpit world? And, you know, after lesson after lesson in, in, in a simulator and then actually going out and flying in the plane and, and putting what we've learned to practical use, you know, um, he called me one day and he says, Hey, hey, mate. He says, I, I, uh, I, I bought me a little simulator that, that works on my iPad. He says, I don't think I'm going to be needing it anymore. It was nice flying with you, you know. But he says, if I ever need anything, I'll come back and see you. So I'm, I'm guessing that what we did was a success and that he, he um, he's, he's well on his way to uh, um, flying in this, to him, new age world with a, with a glass cockpit and, and computer screens as opposed to the, the, the regular dials that he was for most of his career. Interesting. That's awesome, dude. And I love hearing those success stories and uh, the fact that he's going forward and using another tool to help him out. Before we get into some of the other safety aspects, both from the VFR and also the IFR uh, part of things, I wanted to, to kind of bring Russ into this because he's an active flight instructor and uh, and talk a little bit about that transition before we talk even safety. Um, have, Russ, as far as your students are concerned, have you had experience with this as far as the glass cockpit and also transitioning folks? Yeah, although I've I do have some experience with uh, like Tom was talking about the G1000 and the Avidine system. Primarily, the uh, majority of glass cockpit issues that I'm working with are conversions of existing airplanes uh, to a glass cockpit, either Garmin's uh, G5 offering or the uh, Aspen system, and that's been the majority of my work. And and so there's a whole different set of stuff than than Tom's dealing with. Uh, some similarities, of course, but but here. F- to a large degree in the planes I'm working in, uh, there are still most of the old gauges there. You know, they've replaced the attitude indicator, the DG, you know, depending on what system they've, they've got. So it's kind of funny because, of course, the benefit of any, you know, either the, the, uh, the Garmin or the Aspen system or the Dynon or, you know, any of these other ones, the ben- one of the main benefits, especially for IFR work, which I, I really kind of focus on, is the ability of your scan to just be so much tighter because all the information is just right there in that you know three-inch window or whatever, right, instead of all over the cockpit. So what's funny is that on the first flight or two, usually things are pretty good because um, – you know they're they're aware. You know they're looking at the the new glass panel and their scans are all nice and tight. Uh, but maybe after a little while, then they tend to go back to their old habits. Now they're using say the the uh, like the G five as basically just an attitude indicator, and you can see their scan going around the sides of the other gauges. So you're not really gaining the benefit or one of the main benefits of that kind of a system. 
Uh, so I've actually gone ahead sometimes and covered up everything else. <laughs> and I, I do that with a bit of hesitation, though, of course, because you, know, you don't want to ignore other instruments in the cockpit. However, I am, of course, trying to show them the, the benefits of, man, if your eyes only have to move an inch either way versus six inches in any direction, you can really accelerate that scan and, and correct problems quickly. So sometimes I'll, like I said, just cover up everything else and force them to look at it, and then I'll gradually remove stuff, too. Interesting. If he, uh, it, it, it's not like in the simulator where you can just, okay, put an X over it, that kind of thing. <laughs> so. No, I, I, I put my little uh, you know, stickies. I, sometimes I'll draw smiley faces on the stickies or something like that, you know, just to you know, <laughs> make light of it, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, some people, actually, that's, that's where they started, actually, was in glass, and they've never really gotten over to the round dials. And I think, uh, Rick, I think you were one of those people that started in a Cirrus, right? Yeah, and it was it was not totally by choice, although it was an inclination I had at the time anyway, so it sort of fit. Maybe I, I unknowingly went in that direction. Part of it was the airport I chose and where I live and what, what the flight school there was doing. But I'm also sort of very into sort of current tech, and so for me it just made sense. You know, it was like, well, of course, you know, I want to I want to do the the latest thing. So, but I totally agree with what I'm what I'm hearing, which I have I have flown with some people. And, you know, with round gauges and, you know, I get how it's just a matter of, of getting accustomed to where to track the data. Um, and uh, but, yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know any other don't know any other practical way for me because I haven't I have very little experience with round gauges. And so you have your your private you don't have your instrument or anything yet. Right. No. So so that brings up a really good point that I've had somebody talk to me about and th this is the reason i kind of wanted to talk about this skyview hdx being uh, sdc approved is i've heard this comment uh, from a few people so i kind of want to address it is you know okay that's neat and everything but i'm a vfr pilot this isn't really going to help me much and i think i think it does i think it brings a level of safety and efficiency to the vfr flyer like yourself rick uh, in that we don't look at it this way. We notice where the conversation went a few times. We talked about IFR flying, but I think there's a lot there that enables us to be safer and more efficient pilots in the VFR environment. I, just one of the things I'll mention is I love all the gauges on the aircraft engines and the ability to mm -hmm. do a better job, you know, in, in leaning. And you did that on the on the G1000, right? Uh, it was it's Avdine Avidine in the um, yeah sorry Cirrus but the no but a G one thousand I but then I transitioned to a uh, to one seventy two which is what I finally ended up getting my license in and that had a uh, G one thousand so yeah I mean the data the, there's a lot there's a lot of great information that you can and it's just it's the, you know it, it's like any student in general it's a you know it's drinking from a fire hose. And in, in many ways, it, it's just getting settled into knowing how to filter that information quickly, uh, you know, uh, and correctly. And, and that, come, that came along, you know, over time, it was no big deal. But, you know, this first time stepping in there, you know, where am I looking? Now, where's the radio? You know, and uh, all that stuff. But then, it, then, it, then you get it. So, Well, you know, it's funny because when I was first flying in the G1000, I think it was uh, 
And, and I can't, I think it was with Tom the first time I went up in the G1000. I know I've been in simulators and, and boy, I was like, you know, where, where is everything? And I, and I was like, okay. And we just talked about that to transition. But, but as I, I got looking at it, I said to myself, wow, this is great. This is awesome. Um, but one of the things, and I know Larry wants to talk about this, is the fact that in the Steam world or in, in the more traditional instruments we have certain failures and we have certain things to look for and look for as a possibility of a failure and say to ourselves oh boy you know i can tell that gauge is is creeping along etc but we look in different spots Uh, and larry what what you know as far as your experience with the differences there or what you've heard of etc you know what challenges do you think are there for the person that is coming like myself who came from the traditional steam gauges Sure, Carl. So I, I came from a steam uh, gauge too. I got my instrument rating at a 1959 172 uh, with a, a Venturi on the side. I didn't have, even have a, uh, a vacuum pump, but uh, which has its own failure modes that are different. But um, it, you know, you think about it. If you're going to lose your attitude indicator or your DG, you know, you have a vacuum failure. It's sort of slow. And you may start to notice something precessing or acting wobbly or whatever, and and eventually, you know, it dawns on you, oh, look over at the vacuum gauge or whatever. Um, With the electronic instruments, they tend to be rather immediate in their response. They can self-check, and they know when they've failed. And so they can put a big red X over an instrument and take it off your your panel. Um, On the other hand, it's not always obvious to a steam gauge pilot like myself or yourself as we're transitioning um, what all is tied together and how it works. So I flew a uh, Diamond uh, DA-40 uh, in our club uh, over in Madison for a long time, uh, and it was a 2006 model year that had uh, the G1000 system, but it didn't have a Garmin autopilot. It had the King KAP-140 that a lot of people are familiar with from other aircraft. Um, And so the way it was set up in that particular aircraft, if I lost my PFD, you know, like if you just reach over and pop the breaker or something like that, the autopilot, if you were using it, would stay engaged and work quite happily. If I lost my MFD, the autopilot would fail. You know, so if I was going to lose one or the other, I'd rather lose the PFD that's in front of me than the MFD that's in front of the, you know, right-hand seat. if it was going to keep my autopilot intact, because if you're if if you're in a situation where things are failing, you know your workload is going up, and you want all the help you can get. Um, another um, thing that we had in that particular airplane was sort of a a difficult to diagnose problem where our magnetometer would get. Uh, 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 out of whack from time to time. And so the magnetometer would go, which meant you had no directional signal, which also meant your um, your true airspeed indicator would go. You know, there were like a, a bunch of things that would domino effect fail after one thing failed. And it wasn't, you know, once you understood how the systems work together, it wasn't that big of a deal. But for somebody transitioning, you're like, why does that fail when, you know, something that would seem unrelated to a steam gauge pilot would fail. And that's a that's an awesome point. And it's also different. I think you kind of alluded to this. It's different in different systems too. You know, and like you just yes. said, you lost your PFD, your primary flight display, and also your MFD, your multifunction display. And the multifunction display was tied to your autopilot. And you're like, oh, 
okay, so I'd rather have the PFD fail than the MFD fail if I want to use the autopilot. So I thought that was kind of interesting in, in your discussion. And it happens a lot with all these different uh, displays that are, or any kind of electronic airplane where something fails and it affects like three other systems that you didn't realize. Uh, but similarly, in the, in the steam gauge world, certain things fail. But you also, I think a lot of times... Uh, to me, I should say, it's more intuitive because if I lo- lose a vacuum gauge, I'm looking at the different things that are vacuum-driven, and I'm looking at the things that are electronically driven. And I say, okay, I know that I'm going to lose this, my attitude, my directional gyro. Do I have the ability to till, still fly? Yeah, I do. But uh, that is a great point you brought up as far as the different failures because you know I've, I've lost about six attitude indicators and maybe more in, in my career. And watching the standby attitude indicator fail is so – or excuse me, the, the steam gauge – attitude indicator fails a lot different than when you have an attitude indicator fail that is electronic because like you said what normally happens i'm glad glad you brought this up too is you see a red x or uh, maybe not necessarily a red x but there could be a little red symbol that comes up uh, or verbiage that says that this part of your system has failed Uh, but but with all that said, the other cool thing, I think, leading into the next thing as far as in a VFR environment is the backup systems. You talked about your MFD and the ability to actually move from one to the next screen even and to the next system. And that I think that's awesome. And also the fact that you have standby systems, standby attitude indicators that are also electronically driven. So, uh, for instance, I've flown numerous planes that were had an electronic flight display, but also had the steam gauge to the right as a standby, and that was cool, but what if that failed, the steam gauge failed, and also the, it seemed the steam gauges failed more you know, consistently than the electronics. So it, it's kind of interesting to see all that on the displays and realize that, yeah, we do have the ability to have these backup systems, but we also need to make sure that we understand how that backup system works because the electronics and the backup system works differently. And that's kind of your point. Going back to what you said, it's like, oh, wait a minute, what's tied to the standby, you know, attitude indicator, say that's electronic, that type of thing. Um, Other failures, too, uh, that you see um, in uh, the electronic system are, are also similar, I think in the fact that say you have a a misread on any type of you know have a line in or whatever and you you looking for a uh, gauge and you're saying hey wait a minute it's still showing full on my fuel or it's showing empty and i know that's not true uh but you know is it correct is the gauge correct has it failed so you can actually have that type of thing fail too and that's something that i think is totally different in in looking at the you know the traditional aircraft and also the electronic aircraft, pretty fascinating though. And I know that there's a lot of other things that are that lead to more safety. So I'd like to hear too from from and Larry, I, I really appreciate that point uh, from you know the other folks that are instructing, especially and the folks that fly these. You know what are the things so that we can prove that point that yeah this is much better for the VFR pilot. And I just mentioned you know the gauges and things like that, but there's quite a few other things that we use and I. Uh, and I'm kind of alluding to the to the navigation part of it. So you know, maybe you know, Tom, if you could pick this up as far as you know, what what type of things do you have in the glass that I don't have in my old 182 that enable me to be a safer pilot in a VFR VFR flying environment? Sure. You know, so um, 
you know, you, you alluded to the two screens. You have all that information, your, your primary flight display, which you're using to fly the airplane. Your multifunction display is showing you where you are. Um, I tell students on a very rudimentary level, it's basically my tom-tom in the sky, you know, and um, on the, the primary flight display and the multifunction display, there is a, a nearest button. At any given time, I can hit this nearest button and it will give me information and directions to the nearest airport. So if one of those gauges or if everything just kind of goes away, I've still got a way that I can get there. Um, you know, I start losing systems. I got a way to find my way to an airport and get the plane on the ground. Um, that's nothing that I could find inside of a, a steam-gauged aircraft. You know, um, I've, I've had um, steam-gauged aircrafts that have had uh, Garmin products put inside of it, uh, specifically the 430 and the 530. Um, and, of course, you know, these days a lot of us are flying with iPads and things like that. Um, you know, and there's some really good products that hook up with those from the high end, you know, to like the Stratus to go with Floorflight um, and, and Floorflight's own product, which is the – uh, what is it, the Scout, which is a $200 solution for traffic and weather. You know, these are all things that give us great situational awareness and help us go there. But when you have it built into the system of the airplane itself, even for a VFR pilot, it puts you in a lot safer place. Um, you still, you're still using pilotage, you're still using dead reckoning, but now you have this layer of information that is going to make you that much safer of a pilot. So another thing, too, as far as having all that information is the fact that, uh, you know, in situational awareness, I, I'm glad you brought this up, is the fact that some of us are out there flying quite a bit at night. And I know, Larry, you like to do a lot of night flying, and so do I. And I thought this was a great point in that I'm not sitting there. And I remember, you know, having the red little light above me and looking down at my charts. And now they have these displays now that have some of that information, don't they, Larry? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's just one more thing that helps you be uh, more situationally aware. Even if you're VFR on a clear night, it's still, you know, there's a lot you're not seeing. Um, it does sort of border on IFR conditions sometimes just from what you can see. And being able to, you know, spin a, um, a direct two line to the airport around on a runway heading and say, oh, look, I'm 90 degrees off that. I must be on you know, a good base, or maybe I'm not quite lined up on a good base yet. Um, you know, those those kind of just simple um, techniques with the equipment and being familiar with the equipment um, it, it can really be helpful. I think it blows me away to see me lining up for a runway if I put that, you know, just have a center line down the runway and, and extend that center line and being able to line up at nighttime. Uh, I know at the, like at the airlines, we, we don't really do visual approaches like the normal person would. We always have something to back it up. And even if it's just that line down the center of the runway, so we make sure we land on the correct runway, the correct airport, that type of thing. And one of the things I think is, is really cool about this is the fact that as this is happening, I'm watching myself doing this intercept. It also helps me as far as terrain is concerned. And one thing that blows me away, especially going back to this new Dynon system, is is this whole synthetic vision thing. And obviously the angle of attack thing is cool, but the synthetic vision thing is, is really, really neat. I have never seen synthetic vision uh, in an airplane, but uh, I think that would be, uh, I mean, I've seen on YouTube, uh, but I thought that would be awesome to see that. Does anybody, you know, either... You know, Tom, or have you had experience with that, maybe, or Russ? 
Um, yeah, so I do. I fly a Cirrus SR22 um, G5. It's a 2016. It does have the synthetic vision inside of it. Um, and Cirrus actually put another feature that's on it. It actually has an infrared camera that's under the wing as well that I can load up on the MFD. And now I've got information looking down at the ground where I can tell temperatures. So like as Larry was saying, flying at night, you're looking down into an abyss down at the ground and you see a big black spot. Is it a lake? Is it a patch of woods? Is it a road? And um, this infrared camera actually gives you enough information where you can like pick out the roads because the temperature is different. You can pick out the lakes. You can pick out the uh, the woods. And it's just another level that that just I don't know. It, it's unbelievable the amount of information they can give you. But the um, the synthetic vision that the first time I ever flew with that Carl, it, it almost kind of scared me. It was so accurate. It, it knew where the lines in the center of the runway were. As I was going over the top of them, you could see them on your screen. Wow, that's incredible. You know, <laughs> one of the things that I think is, is it, to me, as you were talking, kind of would be scary to me is is being able to manage all that. Is there any, you know, not that I don't have a lot of experience in the, in the general aviation world with that type of uh, electronics, usually I'm, you know, steam gauges, but how about managing all those systems? Like you just said something, you said infrared, then you said you had also the, the synthetic vision. How do you go back and forth between those? Is it, is it easy to do? Is it a good interface? Yeah, it, it really is. And, and the, the synthetic vision actually is, um, portrayed behind all of your instruments on the primary flight display it's a part of so your eyes are already right on it and it's turned you can turn it on or turn it off you can put it back to the standard you know ground uh, brown ground and, and blue sky or you can set it up in the synthetic vision mode and it it kind of tracks along and you it, it's when you're when you're up in the sky you're, you're basically just seeing um you know the differences between ground and water there's not a lot going on but what it does show you is that there's um you know it'll pinpoint airports and it shows up on the screen right in front of you so like if you have uh you're flying along and there's an airport that's 15 miles and it's off your one o'clock you can see that on the synthetic vision so it's another tool to help you that if you do have a systems failure need to get to an airport right away it's just one less place you got to look to point yourself in the right direction to get to an airport and they actually put a little flag on the top of it with the name of the airport you know and there there are other times too where whether it's synthetic vision or just the ability to have a really good uh, situational awareness due to the um the picture that you're getting on the mfd um you know like i flew out of madison and uh, madison wisconsin and we've got you know three main runways there um and on a calm night you know it, it i'd go out to get night current or whatever and take off on three two expecting to do three quick laps around the pattern and in the process of that because of you know an occasional airline traffic uh, uh, that was coming in or, or whatever other GA traffic you know I get diverted from three two to three six to three you know and all of a sudden my you know all, all of my downward basin final angles are are just constantly getting changed and being able to see that picture or see that synthetic vision um, just kind of you know, keeps your your head on top of things and keeps you a little ahead of the airplane instead of, um, you know, either trying to do math in your head or or you know something else. 
And, and speaking of doing math in your head, I think the other cool thing is all the other things it can do. You know, like you, you know, we talked about the systems and the aircraft and leaning and stuff like that. Uh, you know, they have lean assist and those type of things, and have the synthetic vision that enables you to turn. But also, a couple things that could happen is in the IFR world. Let's talk a little bit about that as far as safety and transition to to talking about how this all the electronic displays can help us in the IFR environment, but also can make things a little bit more difficult. Now, I'll give you an example. I know that you know flying for work if we're set up uh, with a certain approach in the system it takes a little while to put the next approach in and we're you know a thousand feet high and it's like hey can you go over to the next runway uh there are times that we have to say no we can't do it because you know we can't load it into the system etc and uh you know or if we're five miles out out you know outside the fix and now we got to move around and, and change everything in in the computer yeah, it takes a little while. So I want to talk a little bit about that and also talk about IFR and how this actually makes it safer for us as IFR pilots. One thing that I think is really cool, and I haven't seen this, so I'd love to hear about some of you folks that have had some, some experience, is the fact that you can actually follow along on a chart and track your airplane uh, I still have the old system where I'm looking at the chart next to me, and then I'm looking at the flight display in front of me, and uh, and I'm like, wow, you know, being able to actually have that in front of me would so cool would be great. Um, and I, I was wondering, you know, did, it, Russ, have you had experience with those systems that actually have those charts? And in other words, the IFR procedures in front of you, like the approach plates. Well, yeah, to some degree on the uh, on the the glass cockpit displays. Uh, to a, a, abs- absolutely with uh, the iPads and the electronic flight bags. Uh, to me, I've found that the ones that display on the um, on the the panels in front of you, depending on how you have it laid out, sometimes they're hard to read. Sometimes you know, they, if you wanted to track up, they're upside down or whatever that kind of thing. So, I tend to not use them a whole lot on those displays, but I love having it on on the iPad or another tablet, uh, for example. And those do have the airplane on the chart, just like you're talking about. Um, I've actually found, though, that as, as neat as that seems, you know, having that little blue airplane moving along the, the, uh, the instrument approach, my focus is all on, on the instrumentation in front of me anyway. And I found that with that to be true with, with students as well, you know, they have, they'll be using it essentially as a paper chart, you know, looking at, okay, my, I can go down 3000 when I pass whatever this fix. And then they're back on their, you know, their, their GPS and their, their CDIs and that kind of thing. So although to me, it, it is a neat function. Uh, it, it doesn't override the, uh, the instruments in front of you in my, in my opinion. So with that said, I think one of the things that I have an issue with because I'm getting older is the fact that the iPad, I love it because of the fact that I don't even have to put my readers on. I can zoom in real quick by spreading it and seeing the actual, okay, there's 3,000, here's 2,000. Uh, and I'm, I would think that, and again, I don't have experience with it, it might be a, a little bit more of a challenge to do that with the chart displayed on in front of you Although it does give you some situational awareness, it, it it may be a detriment to some, say, like myself, who's you know starting to to lose that near near vision. So Tom, well, I was, there, go ahead, Russ. Oh, I was, I was just going to mention sometimes the uh, the the panel is in that kind of middle vision field for some people, right? So mm-hmm. you can you can read something right in front of you, but you, you having you know, trifocals or something, you know, getting to that stage to see that kind of middle vision, maybe, um, but. So I, I agree that the, for in, for each individual, it might be a little bit different as far as what's optimum for you. 
Right, right. And for those guys that do have those trifocals like me and uh, do have those kind of issues, it really is important. It's something you don't think about, but when you're sitting there, uh, and I remember the first time I realized I needed readers, I was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't see what the minimums are. It's like, oh my gosh, I think it's time to get readers. Uh, but, uh, but Tom, I know you also have some experience there with these. And I was wondering maybe if you could add on to what Russ was saying and, and what your experience has been with using the IFR charts uh, with all these electronic displays. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm going to have to agree with Russ wholeheartedly. Um, I find the same thing with my students. Um, usually, um, the ones that I've been flying, a lot of times the, the plates that go along inside the electronic flight displays or inside the, the G1000 is, is a subscription-based thing. But those that have it, um, when you bring them up, they're handy to have. You have all your charts and everything right there in front of you. But um, again, I would use it just for a briefing and then I would go right back to the multifunction display with the moving map because that gave me better information as I'm coming in on approach. Kind of gives you a little sense of, um, I don't know, security being able to see the ground and what's going on there and where your where your plane is positioned to that um you can range in and out and and get yourself uh, at a distance to where you got a a pretty decent idea of what's coming up and, and what's going on around you and and i lose that sense when i have that plate up so when i put the plate up on the multifunction display it doesn't seem to work as well and and the way that russ was describing it was was exactly the experience that i was having with it as well so from a practical, functional standpoint, it's still best to do that, to have your chart next to you and use this, this MFD in, in the display mode that you're talking about and also have a better situational awareness there. And I think that's great. One of the things that I think is interesting is that we, you know, sometimes when we go to these new systems, we have, you know, sometimes we rely on them too much, but they are really great for safety. And one of the things that I, I would like to hear from you guys about the IFR environment, because I know in the VFR environment, it will give me warnings about certain things. Uh, what type of warnings are there, say, in the IFR environment, meaning that, say, I bust an altitude or I go below an altitude, will I, will I actually get something on the screen that says, hey, hey buddy, you're, you're too low? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was an uh, easy I, answer. <laughs> yeah, well, well and, and it does. So, so the G1000s that, that I've been flying do exactly that. If you start encroaching, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if there's a setting in there where you can actually let it know how sensitive it is or when you want to get that warning but it will it'll start telling you you know you're within x amount of miles of a class bravo airspace you know and it, it'll come up as an alert and then you'll have to acknowledge it that that'll um, that that mm -hmm. you okay i know thank you I, I call it sweetheart all the time. Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, because she does. She they, the, the G one thousand comes up with all sorts of um, both um, visual and oral warnings uh, depending on the system that you're using. Uh, the the perspective in the Cirrus, it, it'll it'll say things to you. You know, um, you know, it'll give you altitude warnings, it'll give you terrain warnings, and and things that are really important to you as a pilot. It'll say it out loud, and and then you have to acknowledge it. And and I always say, thank you, sweetheart. So I'm wondering also on the actual approach. So I'll give an example. If you're on an approach and there's a step-down fix, you're at 5,000 and the final approach fix is at 3, and the controller says descend, maintain, 3,000, you're clear for the approach, you are outside that 5,000 fix and the step-down, and you say, okay, I'm going to go down to 3,000. The plane I fly now would actually give you a little warning that, hey, you know, by the way, you were supposed to be at 5,000. Did you really want to do that? Uh, does, does this system that you have or that you've worked with, any of those systems, will that warn you of that? No. Not, okay. not the ones that I've flown. 
not to that not warnings to that level no it, gotcha. it, it'll if 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 you uh, want to go screw up and approach it'll let you do that right so it'll still other than the ground proximity warnings though you might get saying hey you're not at the airport but uh you are not going to get that warning on the approach then interesting interesting i'm wondering if that is uh true with the dynon system or any of the newer systems that are out there i'd love to hear from some of the listeners on that yeah i'm not sure i know i know the garmin perspective uh will will always tell you when you're at 500 feet right right. that oral warning all the time so that's that should be a good warning like uh uh-oh ground's coming yeah that is a good warning i like that one but uh again some of these systems will give you warnings way way out there hey you're missing so even on say an arrival that you're doing hey you're supposed to be at ten thousand and you're at eight thousand or something like that and it'll warn you there so uh that's quite interesting but you know this is a actually a, a really cool discussion we've had and we could talk for ages on the the benefits of the electronics but i really think that it does make us more efficient it, it makes us safer as pilots uh with all the new electronic displays and the electronic systems and the backups uh but most importantly and i know all the instructors here will agree is that you really need to get the training in it and uh in those that have just like larry brought up it's like boy things kind of you know they do different things when they break so it's really important that you need to to go out there and understand what's going to happen when the system fails and uh and then actually do it go out there and practice it go on the simulator that type of thing love to hear your feedback stuck mike uh, fcast at gmail.com if you have any comments uh also some experience i'd like to hear your feedback as far as uh your experience with some of these systems and the ones that we may not know much about that we we were talking about maybe something uh that like i said with those those warnings that type of thing i'd like to hear about that as far as altitude warnings if uh, if you uh the listener is actually using a system that warns you there uh well that's it for our discussion on that before we do our picks of the week uh i have one other thing i'd like to ask uh the audience and and everybody else about is the fact that i'm coming up for the renewal on my cfi some of you are also not active enough as a cfi and i i'm trying to figure out what online say or it doesn't have to be online but what system I should use to renew my CFI, and I'm I want to do a review for the next episode. Now I've already done the King system, I've already done AOPAs, and I've done the Jeppesen uh, renewal, and I talked about those three. So I'm looking for something else. So if you could send me an email, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com, and uh, and let me know what you think I should try next and and review. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, so and I I need it in maybe the next month or two so I can actually get my my CFI renewed. We're gonna have another episode talking about the CFI. We uh, we were uh, thinking about discussing that tonight, but we've kind of run out of time. And uh, you know, one of the things I I want to put in your head is if you've ever thought about teaching or wanted to get to know you know aviation better, think about becoming an instructor, maybe a ground instructor. It doesn't have to be a flight instructor. It's a lot of fun. It's a real challenge. Our picks of the week. Let's uh, let's move on. To our next segment of the show and that is our picks of the week we have some really cool picks of the week here and um, actually i'll start off here with one that um, this one is interesting because i've actually mentioned this before and i it's a book it's called without precedent and it's with owens up and owen has uh, he's a great guy uh, he's down in australia he's an australian airline pilot very active uh, general aviation pilot and uh, he's talked to us before and he's uh, flown all the way around australia in a single engine a jabiru and was an incredible story there but 
Owen's father actually had a very interesting life and brings some light onto, uh, you know, Owen himself uh, through his book. It's called Without Precedent, uh, Commando, Fighter Pilot, and the True Story of Australian's First Purple Heart. And that means the Purple Heart from the United States. And that was during the Korean War. He was actually the first Purple Heart recipient uh, from Australia. It's kind of interesting. You're probably thinking, gee, that's interesting. I didn't realize they gave Purple Heart. Some of you might not know that to other folks and other, you know, uh, the Air Forces, the Army, Marines, etc. from other countries. But he did receive that. But what's, what's more interesting about this is the challenges that he's had throughout his life. And I actually had to put the book down for a while because it kind of reminded me of some things that in the past with, with you know, my dad during his service. And I was like, oh, man, I, this is getting hitting too hard, you know, close to home. But his story, really, when it, as it pertains to aviation, is that throughout his whole life, he really followed his passion for flight. And to the point of... And I know a lot of folks that listen here have thought about going to the airlines one day or whatever, to the point of actually going to an airline and saying, you know what, this isn't for me. I love flying general aviation. I love doing instructing, et cetera. And he uh, and found something that he really loved to do, and I won't give it away, but uh, had a, an incredible life as a pilot and, of course, produced an incredible uh, aviation writer and uh, also speaker and somebody who's uh, written in airliners he's written in australians magazines on aviation and that's owens up so again we'll have a link to that without precedent uh it's uh about uh his father and uh it's the first his, his father's name was philip uh the first uh person to get the australian or excuse me the purple heart from america as an Australian. So very, very interesting story there. Uh, anyway, the next uh, pick of the week, let's see. Russ, what is your pick of the week? Okay, well, if you're the type of guy who likes uh, statistics, uh, Carl, I, <laughs> I think you'll like this. I, I actually really enjoy statistics. I'm one of those strange people, I suppose. But this is just a kind of a reference page. It might be interesting to look at, you know, occasionally. It's the FAA's uh, Instrument Flight Procedure Inventory Summary. So if you've ever wondered how many GPS approaches are out there or that kind of thing, uh, we'll have the link in the show notes because it's not a very easy-to-remember link. But uh, it's, I, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, for example, the, the most recent uh, publication uh, chart data has here is February 1st because that was the well, actually, as we're recording this, today is a, a new publication date, so I imagine they'll update this pretty soon. But uh, you can see that if you go here that there is um, there are only two SDF approaches left in the uh, inventory. SDF is one of those things that instrument piles learn about for the written test, the simplified directional facility, and we never see them. And this is why. There's only two left. So, so uh, interesting little factoids like that. Um, it's just it's just a neat neat page to kind of look through and uh, and see what's out there. Like um, if they simplify it any more, there won't be any. <laughs> that's, yeah, two more. So you kind of wondering why they're hanging around. But um, there are six thousand five hundred seventy seven RNAV GPS approach charts out there, for example. So that's you know, it's just just uh, interesting statistics that I, I found, and uh, maybe some others would like that too. 
You know, this is this is such a cool thing. I love statistics also. And uh, I'm going to have to change my, you know, years ago, I used to ask my students, what is the most popular instrument approach procedure? And uh, the answer has always been circling. Uh, that's not true anymore. I just found out uh, by looking at this. Uh, and uh, it's actually going to be the uh, RNAV. So pretty interesting stuff. Uh, so awesome, awesome, man. That is, that is too cool. And uh, yes, uh, some of us are weird and love statistics. So uh, cool stuff. It's uh, when, By the way, we'll have all these links in the show notes. Uh, anyway, who's next? Let's see. Rick, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, um, I've been uh, digging back into some books about uh, the space program. I've been listening to some podcasts about it and got me to do some reading. And uh, I thought... I'd bring this book up for the, for this particular audience. It's called Into the Black. It's it's from a couple of years ago, and it's basically a book detailing what led led up to and the specific specifically the first space shuttle launch, um, which was Columbia. And what's interesting, just what blows my mind about it, and you know reminds me, you know what makes it such a compelling story. Besides, um, you know, besides it, just the details that are in it, is that that the uh, two pilots one of whom had with john young who who had, has recently passed away um huge amount of experience as test pilots uh i think navy pilots and and john young had actually been to the moon a lot of experience but no one had ever done the flight they were about to do when they got into that cockpit of the, of the first uh, shuttle launch because there wasn't a test flight <laughs> there wasn't a way to <laughs> to kind of do a small version of it and um uh, and that is a pretty compelling thought. <laughs> so um, I, I have not read uh, very, you know, all the book yet, but I, I like it a lot, and I think uh, uh, pilots will appreciate it because that's what that giant glider is. You know, it is a was. It's a giant glider. <laughs> yeah, and the whole idea. Of, I always look at trainers and go, okay, or, or single cockpit planes that have trainers that you know have dual cockpits. You know, it makes sense a little bit that you you would be trained in a way in another kind of plane similar uh but this one seems like the ultimate uh can't be trained you know can't practically have the experience of doing it until you do it right kind of wild wow sounds like a great story thanks for that rick appreciate that uh the next one up is uh, victoria what is your pick of the week my pick of the week is a Savvy Aviation's Aircraft uh, Breakdown Assistance Program. It's kind of cool if you're just flying to another airport and something um, happens maintenance-wise and you're not sure if, hey, is this something I can fly home with or is this something that really needs to be fixed right now? Situations like that, um, it's this annual type of um not a policy per se, but it's like a it's a program that you can call 24/7, and experienced mechanics will talk to you and um, learn about the situation and advise you on what's the best um, route to achieve. You know, do you have to get it fixed then and there, or is this something that can wait till when you're back home with your regular mechanic? And um, how I found out about this program is one of the insurance companies we work with, Global Aerospace. If you write a policy with them, you get a free year of this breakdown assistance. So um, that's been kind of something special that um, I've been setting uh, our clients up with if they happen to have um, Global Aerospace provides them a competitive, one of the lowest quotes, uh, you get this free breakdown assistance for a year. 
And and by the way, that that breakdown assistance is actually uh, they say fuel by savvy, and uh, savvy aircraft maintenance management is an incredible company. Used them in the past for for doing pre-purchase inspections. And uh, if you don't uh, remember, there's a like Mike Bush who has uh, written so much about aviation and been in many magazines, and he is the person who started Savvy. So uh, Global is actually using. Uh, this the savvy system meaning that there is a lot of experience behind that uh, so yes that's a that's an awesome system and I would definitely like to look into that that's that's really cool uh, because it's nice to have somebody with a lot of experience saying hey listen what is it you can do now that you're broken down so that was a great one thank thanks Victoria yeah. um, next pick of the week is from Larry Larry what is your pick of the week yeah, so uh, March is Women's History Month, and so I thought I would pick a book that our family has been reading recently um, that talks about a woman who has made history in the fairly recent past rather than way back, and that is Shoot Like a Girl um, by National Guard Major Mary Jennings Hager. Um, she was a pilot of an HH-60 Pavehawk, which is sort of a, a version of a Blackhawk helicopter for medevac and, and SAR missions. Um, she had three tours in Afghanistan, ended up getting shot down. Uh, her uh, bravery and valor as she uh, saved the lives of her crew and also the patient that she was there to, to retrieve um, earned her a Purple Heart and a Distinguished Flying Cross. Um, but but then the story continued, and as, as she got back to the States and, and finished her tour, she fought to eliminate the ground combat exclusion or the exclusion on women in, in combat um, because she felt that women were effectively in combat, but not, you know, very, very much already and have been for a long time, but aren't getting the recognition that is due them for the service that they're, you know, giving to the country. Um, and so, um, a very inspiring book. I highly recommend it. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's a good read, a good story. And I, I think it's going to come out as a movie here sometime in the next, you know, year or two. Great book. I'm going to be looking for that movie. Maybe we'll do a movie review next. So uh, that sounds really cool. Some incredible challenges, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up this month So for Women's History Month. And by the way, don't forget to look at our Facebook page. We have a couple things about women's history on there. Uh, anyway, the uh, next thing is to pick a week from Tom. Tom, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, so I, I picked one, and I'm, I think I've picked this one before, but I, I, I did it because... Um, I, I meet so many great pilots that, that come in and I, I do flight reviews and checkouts and all sorts. And I, I get people from all walks of aviation life, um, from airline pilots to corporate pilots to, you know, uh, VFR pilots. And, and um, you know, one of the things that um, I notice when I do a lot of checkouts and do a lot of reviews is is the weather thing. And um, so I picked this aviationweather.gov, the the graphical forecast um for, for um, aviation, sorry, and um, going through and looking at uh, graphically the tafts, the ceilings and visibility, the clouds, and over the next forecast period for like the 12, next 12 to 14 hours. By the way, this is what replaced the um, area forecast. When they did away with the area forecasts last year, um, we stopped getting information in that area about where the tops of the clouds are. This... Uh, 
graphical forecast for aviation is is a graphical view and it will tell you not only where the bases of the clouds are forecast to be but where the tops of the clouds are supposed to be so it's a it's a really great tool for kind of looking out into the future and forecasting and and what's going to happen along your right of flight right route of flight easy for me to say <laughs> <laughs> so and and like I said, the reason I bring it up is like when when I do all these reviews, I show this to people and, and how they can get this information and they're just blown away with how much good information they can get off of this. So I just want to make sure I tell as many people about this as possible because it is a really good tool and it really helps us as pilots to go out and um, stay as safe as we possibly can and make good decisions before we even leave the ground. And, and this is the tool to do it. And I'm glad you brought that up about the area forecasts. I mean, how many people have uh, don't realize that the area forecasts are gone uh, and you have to go to the GFA tool like you just mentioned, and there's a lot of information on there. I'm glad you brought that up. It's, it is surprising. It's been gone for a little while now. Uh, and uh, you know, I actually had an instructor say that to me the other day. He's like, hey, when did this go away? Uh, so uh, me, obviously, you don't, sometimes you don't use those tools, but that, that GFA is, is really, really cool. So uh, I'm glad you got, gave us that update on that uh by the way all these links that are mentioned in the podcast you can find as far as the the, the picks of the week uh right at the the bottom of the show notes for episode 168 uh also one of the things we we have been mentioning every so often is the video of the week you know we're going to seaplane at palooza don't forget you come see us on the 7th and 8th and also the 10th through the 15th at sun and fun follow us on facebook and twitter and we're going to have a daily show come out out for all those shows for our live show liveatc.net slash snf i really highly recommend you go to that and also if you want to say hi to us please come by and say hi even if we're busy wave at us and say hi because uh, sometimes we are doing an interview but we'd love to speak to everybody and talk to everybody out there uh there is a video though i'd love you to watch it's by paul bertarelli it's easy for me to say also is uh he actually did one for avweb about getting the light sport rating and Paul, uh, some people joke he's not that animated, but he was pretty much smiling the whole time when he was flying uh, that uh, light sport seaplane. And uh, it's actually right out there at Sea Ray. And we are going to go see the person actually in the video and talk to him at the uh, Jones Brothers. And they are the ones that uh, have been doing the check rides a lot for the Sea Ray. So both Victoria and I will be out there. And uh, we're all excited. We can't wait to meet everybody and speak to you and also uh, to be able to bring all this content to you. And, and thanks again for mentioning you really want to see more of this, the live shows. And, and it really takes a whole team effort to put this together. And I really appreciate everybody here. Well, folks, from myself, uh, Larry, us, Victoria, Tom, Rick, and uh, and all the other folks behind the scenes in the production side of things, uh, from the other Russ that does production, uh, and also from Robert Sigliano. Thanks so much for listening. Fly safe, and we hope we'll see you out there at Sun and Fun at one of the air shows. If not, listen to us, liveatc.net slash SNF, and we're going to be downloading all sorts of content. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. It'll be just like you're there. We'll talk to you next episode and safe line. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.